You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up in this edition, anti-GQ1B antibody syndrome. Some patients with Bicastaf brainstem encephalitis don't present with ophthalmoplegia. In other words, we neurologists must have overlooked those patients. But firstly, a look at language deficits in ALS. What's the link between this and executive dysfunction in the condition? Here's Stephen Wing, a specialist neurology registrar at Addenbrooke's Hospital Cambridge, talking to Laura Goldstein, Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology at the Institute of Psychiatry. So Professor Goldstein, thank you very much for joining us. We've known for a long time that executive dysfunction accompanies ALS, but your study published in the JNMP this month highlights the importance of language deficits. Can you tell us a little bit about the background to this study and how you went about exploring this issue? Well, as you say, um, our group has for a long time looked at and, and really concentrated quite a lot on trying to understand executive dysfunction in ALS. Um, and that really developed out of the fact that for many years people thought that ALS wasn't accompanied by any cognitive dysfunction. So when we started this work, probably about 20 years ago or so now, um, in collaboration with Nigel Lee, who ran the MND Care and Research Centre here at the IOP, um, we really wanted to get a handle on what might be the most sensitive aspects of cognitive dysfunction. And it seemed to us for a long time that this seemed to lie in the area within executive dysfunction of verbal fluency. So we undertook a number of studies that showed that verbal fluency um, could categorize patients really in terms of their cerebral activation on scanning and in terms of um, loss of white matter volume on frontotemporal association pathways. And we found that behavioral measures of executive dysfunction were also helpful in terms of um, categorizing some subtypes of familial ALS patients as well. But for a number of years, there have been these sort of suggestions in the literature, and we'd begun picking up on the fact that maybe there were some language impairments in people with ALS that hadn't really been looked at in detail. So some people had looked at what they termed an MND or ALS aphasia, um, and in particular, this was work by John Hodges and Thomas Back, who were identifying impaired um, verb as opposed to noun processing in, in some patients with uh, neuroanatomical correlates, but other people were reporting difficulty in processing verbs or action words, or some people were saying there might be some spelling or some reading problems. Um, but this has always been found in rather a few number of patients and, and not been studied in detail. So we decided that we wanted to have a look at this in more, in, in more depth. Um, and the person who was the lead on the study was a PhD student, Lorna Taylor, um, and this was this was part of her thesis. And the idea here was to do a much more detailed language assessment of patients than we'd done previously by looking at a range of abilities, both in terms of word and, and grammatical comprehension, but also synonym judgment, some reading, looking at this noun versus um, verb processing, uh, looking at... I suppose some of the more subtle naming deficits that one might find according to different semantic categories and then looking at the complexity of spoken or produced language. But alongside that we also did a, a detailed assessment of executive function and 
as a background undertook some memory testing as well. And how did you set about doing all of this? Our approach with our studies has been largely to select patients quite carefully so that we can be reasonably sure that the deficits we find aren't explained on the basis of other neurological problems or on the basis of the medication that they might be taking, Um, which means that they are a highly selected sample and some people say one should sort of take all comers, but we've, we've done this. And in fact, when people use the different approaches, the findings aren't vastly different. Um, so Lorna had a sample of 51 patients who were recruited largely from our ALS clinic, MND clinic here, but also from other centres and then 35 healthy controls. And we checked um, the patient's diagnosis so that they had prob- probable or definite ALS as defined by the LS Goreal criteria, Um, no clinical diagnosis of dementia because we didn't want to look at the patients who might actually have a frontotemporal dementia or somatic dementia or primary progressive aphasia. And we also um, chose patients who didn't have particularly reduced uh, forced vital capacity because respiratory muscle weakness and reduced forced vital capacity is also in itself associated with a degree of cognitive dysfunction. And because we were concentrating so heavily on language, we excluded people if their first language wasn't English. Um, and then if they had a history of cerebrovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes or head injury, for example, and if people were on psycho active medication, we also excluded them. So we had a large amount of data um, and we were very wary of the fact that having so much data, we didn't really want to be accused of undertaking multiple comparisons on lots of different individual tests. So with statistical advice, we devised what we called sort of cognitive composite scores. So we derived standardized scores for each of the tests Um, but within the domain then combine these by taking the average scores to have a composite for language, a composite for executive scores, and then a composite also for the memory, although that's just dealt with in supplementary material in the paper. And then we looked at the composite scores um, for the patients versus controls, and for both the executive and the language composites, we found that the patients showed greater abnormality than the controls and this appeared to be more marked for the language than the executive composite and then we sort of uh, sort of people have been interested in different ways and I'll come on to this in a minute but people are interested in the percentage of patients who might be impaired in particular ways so we looked at the percentage of patients um, both the executive and the language composites who were sort of more impaired in terms of the fifth percentile versus controls, so who were below the fifth percentile score for um, controls. And we found impairment in 31% of patients on the executive composite compared to controls, but 43% of the patients were impaired on the language composite compared to controls, which was considerably greater than we'd expected, I think, but also was beginning to suggest that the language impairment might actually be more common or more prevalent than the executive dysfunction that we've always sort of expected to find. Um, And it also seemed to be the case that if patients were impaired on the executive composite, they tended to be impaired on the language composite, 
But if they were impaired on the language composite, they weren't necessarily impaired on the executive composite. And although the executive um, composite scores were predictive of language impairment, this, uh, this accounted for about 44% of the variance. So it's the executive dysfunction certainly wasn't accounting for all the impairment in language disorder when that was seen. The other thing that sort of happened in recent years, and I was involved in developing this, is that there are now some consensus criteria for trying to identify cognitive involvement in patients with ALS. And this came out of a meeting in um, Toronto, near Toronto, a few years ago and was published in 2009. And that has been very much based on identifying impaired scores on at least two independent measures of executive functioning. Um, in patients, but it has only looked at executive functioning. So we decided that we would look to see whether um, we could identify numbers of impaired patients if we also just looked at language functioning. So if we only looked at the individual scores on tests of executive functioning, we found that 25% of the patient group had two or more scores that were indicative of impairment according to controls data on executive functioning. But if we just looked at two or more tests of language functioning, then we found that 39% of patients had two or more scores that were indicative of impairment according to the controls data. So again, it was looking as if the patients were showing greater impairment or more patients were showing impairment on the language measures than on the executive measures. Now, obviously, we didn't have exactly the same numbers of tests within each domain, but we found this interesting because, as I say, the consensus criteria have only considered executive functioning to date, but if one were to extend these and include language functioning, it may suggest that we've previously been underestimating the prevalence of cognitive impairment. Um, and that, for us, is important in a number of ways. Obviously, language um, language measures may provide a different set of biomarkers or proxy markers, if you like, in terms of the disease process. Um, it may be relevant to think about this in terms of neurological correlates. And you know, we found some in terms of um, fMRI data that sort of correlate with naming deficits, but the extent of the cognitive impairment in terms of language functioning was much broader than just naming. But also this may have real clinical implications for the patients because while a number of patients will become dysarthric or anarthric as a part of the disease, they still may be wanting to use assistive devices in terms of communication and these findings may also have implications for people's ability to understand um, clinical procedures that are being explained to them or care options and therefore this is going to have relevance in terms of assessing people's capacity. So we feel this is this is an important sort of first step in beginning to try and extend what we know about cognitive impairment in ALS to language and not just to executive functioning. Laura, thank you. That's a wonderful summary of your work. You said it wasn't expected, but were you surprised to find that language was so commonly affected? Well, I think we were, because I think, but I think there are a number of issues around this. Um, I think language has tended to be ignored to some extent because quite a high percentage of patients will develop 
dysarthria as part of their disease process. And testing language is quite difficult. And a lot of people will end up using assistive um, communication devices. And again, one can't be sure sometimes, I think, whether sort of a very abbreviated use of language might just be due to the difficulty of using a light writer or something like that. Um, so I think we were surprised. I think there is the indication in the literature that those deficits are there, but I think in many cases they've not been studied in particularly large samples or um, in great depth. So a number of studies will only include a measure of naming, for example, as their language measure. So it doesn't allow a lot of detail to be gleaned. Yeah. And there was a strong relationship between the severity of executive dysfunction and language problems, and that they often coexisted. But in some instances, they didn't coexist. And I was wondering whether you thought that was an artifact from the fact that you had a prevalent cohort, and whether you thought there may be a natural history behind this, or do you think that there may be distinct clinical entities? I mean, I think this is probably, you know, the, the next question. And I'm aware that a lot of people don't, you know, don't like our sort of prevalent cohort approach. Some people prefer, you know, true incidence approach. Um, we do select our patients quite carefully so that we can be sure that we aren't detecting cognitive deficits based on hopefully on other neurological or medical conditions or the effect of medication. Um, but we are beginning to wonder, and particularly as more genetic subtypes become clear or become clarified, whether in fact this may be a slightly different um, phenotype um, within the disease spectrum. Yeah, because that's something that we're seeing more and more, isn't it? That yes. um, heterogeneous uh, clinical syndrome um, ends up, uh, we find out more about the mechanism about it and, and clinically subtype it. And we find out later that those clinical subtypes actually map to something more pathological or more hard, be that genetics or, or neuroimaging. What do you think, uh, did, th I mean, did this give any clues about the mechanism of, of executive dysfunctional language? Well, at the moment, I think there's still a degree of uncertainty because... Clearly, the executive scores, as, as you say, in a, account for a percentage of the variance in the language performance. It was 44%. Um, and the, the difficulty is always uh, deciding on the direction of the causality, because obviously, as some people pointed out to us, um, language is also involved in undertaking the executive dysfunction uh, measures. So it is, it's going to be difficult to tease out the true direction of the causality. But I think if it's possible to undertake large um, imaging studies, maybe tractography, maybe functional MRI, but also neuropathological correlates alongside um, genotyping, then I think that may begin to allow us to have a, a better handle exactly on why we are getting these possibly different cognitive profiles. And um, how do you think this will change things in the clinic? What sorts of things should we be doing to look after those with ALS? Well, I think one of the things that sort of has come out over the last few years is that carers and patients in general probably need or want more information on the sorts of things to expect um, from the disease. Um, the MNDA, for example, the Motor Neurone Disease Association in the UK now has information leaflets that are available that talk about cognitive and behavioural change, but they do largely still emphasise executive dysfunction and behavioural change that might accompany that. Um, I think that there may be some real implications in terms of people's 
ability to understand complex inf information that's given to them, one of the tests that was particularly sensitive to impairment in our study was the test of reception of grammar. About 35% of the patients were impaired in terms of their ability to understand quite complex grammatical information. And that may have real implications for how information about interventions or drugs or even sort of palliative care options really um, is, is put to individuals so that they can understand that better. Um, and it may have implications just for how therapists work on a day-to-day -day basis with with individuals. So I think it's going to be a bit of a, a mindset change to to explain to clinicians that maybe language is something that they need to be taking on board in terms of interacting with, with people with ALS and that if people are dysarthric and are having difficulty communicating through a light writer, well, that may be one thing, but it may be that there is some other fundamental difficulty that they are having and that information may need to be put more simply or clearly or given in written format um, so that there are different ways of trying to interpret it. And what do you think the best way for clinicians to uh, pick this kind of deficit up would be? Mm. That's going to be really um, tricky because I think to some extent I, I think that um, carers may have a good insight into whether or not people are generally seeming to listen to what's being said to them or picking up on what's being said to them. So whereas people in the clinic may be picking up on symptoms of impulsivity or apathy, which is also sort of a common behavioral change, one may be wanting to ask carers more about the nature of the interactions that they're having and whether people seem to be communicating as they might have done previously or picking up on things in terms of understanding as well as they might have done. Um, I, it, it, it may be difficult in a busy clinic for clinicians initially to detect a problem unless it's very, very considerably you know, advanced. So I suspect carers or other informal, either other informal caregivers or other therapists may actually hold some of this information that they need passing on into clinic. A challenging problem, I'm sure. And how do you think this changes the way we should study ALS? I think there are a number of issues around at the moment. There are sort of practical issues about the extent of neuropsychological batteries that we can ask patients to complete. But I do think that language needs to assume a more prominent place in those batteries than it has previously done. Um, there's also an issue at the moment about developing screening batteries for use in clinics to try and detect cognitive impairment in individuals. And to date, the, the published measures don't particularly focus on language. And I think that may be, again, sort of running the risk of under-detecting cognitive impairment that might be relevant for individuals. But I think we need to look for neuroimaging and neuropathological correlates as well as the sort of genetic biomarkers that may allow us to try and subdivide what has always been seen as a fairly heterogeneous group of patients into subtypes that have potentially an explanatory biological mechanism. Yeah, and that kind of work's going to take some organising, I suspect. Yes, you know, we've had funding from a variety of sources along the way. This this work was funded through an MRC studentship, 
but the MNDA have provided additional support to this work, as have a number of other funding bodies along the way. And, you know, this this is ongoing and collaborative research. Yes, and very worthwhile research too. So, Laura, thank you very much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. All right, many thanks. And if you'd like to read the article in full along with an accompanying editorial, you can find those both on our website. That's jnnp.bmj.com. Now, in the 1950s, Bickerstaff and Fisher independently described cases with a unique presentation of ophthalmoplegia and ataxia. These tended to follow an antecedent infection, and we now know that most patients carry immunoglobulin G anti-GQ1B antibodies, leading to the conditions being referred to as the anti-GQ1B antibody syndrome. Nobuhiro Yuki of the Department of Medicine, National University of Singapore, has reviewed the syndrome in the latest JNMP and produced criteria for complete versus incomplete disease. Here he is talking to editor Matthew Kiernan. According to the original description, Bicastaph breast encephalitis should show ophthalmoplegia. However, last year, my colleague at National University of Singapore saw a patient with Bicastaph breast encephalitis without ophthalmoplegia. The primary physician suspected the patient had Bicastaph breast encephalitis because the patient had antecedent infectious episode and drowsiness as well as ataxia. He thought that the patient would present with ophthalmoplegia in a few days, but the patient did not develop ophthalmoplegia. We found anti-GQ1B antibodies in that patient, very interestingly, one month later, one of my colleagues saw another patient with atypical patient with Bicastaph breast encephalitis. First, the patient was diagnosed as having viral encephalitis, but according to the presence of antecedent infectious illness and ataxia, I suspected that the patient had a typical Bicastaph encephalitis without ophthalmoplegia, and we confirmed the presence of anti-GQ1B antibodies. So, on the basis of discovering these cases, so the disconnection between the ophthalmoplegia and the brainstem involvement, the ataxia, you then did a literature review and you looked at all of the terms, encephalitis, sickestaff, GQ1B, ophthalmoplegia, and based on bringing everything together, you came up with and incorporating Bickerstaff's original description, criteria for complete versus incomplete disease. Perhaps you could sort of outline that a little bit for, for the clinician. Mm. Based on the findings, we believe that some patients with Bicastaph brainstem encephalitis don't present with ophthalmoplegia. In other words, we neurologists must have overlooked those patients. In other conditions, when patients present with what seems like brainstem stroke or myasthenia or botulism or Wernicke's, that you must also consider 
biggest staff encephalitis as the cause because obviously this is far more treatable. Mm. Yes. So those differential diagnoses are very important. I would like to highlight that auto-antibody testing, anti-GQ and anti-body testing is not always required. I believe that clinical examination, taking history and neurological examination are much more helpful, much more important for us to make a clinical diagnosis because it takes time to get results of anti-GQ and antibodies. We have to listen to chief complaint, diplopia or ataxia, but most patients uh, complain of diplopia, but not ataxia. Second, we have to check the presence of ophthalmoplasia and ataxia. Some patients have a reflexia and others normal or hyperreflexia. More importantly, we have to take history with uh, each patient complain of antecedent infectious illness, such as upper respiratory infectious symptoms, especially sore throat. Very interestingly, patients with staph breast encephalitis or Fisher syndrome often complain of sore throat, but not fever, but not nasal discharge, one to three weeks before the onset of ophthalmoplasia. Other patients also could present with diarrhea one to two weeks before the onset. The onset is also important. So usually patients develop ophthalmoplasia several days after the onset. Not sudden onset, but acute onset progression over several days. I am developing a system to detect anti-GQ1B antibodies in 15 minutes at bedside. I hope that this will be helpful for patients and clinicians in the future, although clinical examinations are much more important. What is the treatment? To be honest, nobody knows whether we should treat patients with Bicastaph breast encephalitis because most patients have good prognosis. However, some patients die at acute progressive phase or recovery phase. So therefore, I recommend the use of intravenous immunoglobulin for patients with Bicastaph breast encephalitis. In contrast, I don't recommend the use of intravenous immunoglobulin for patients with Fisher syndrome. Most patients with Fisher syndrome completely recover six months after the disease onset. So this is my personal opinion. We don't have to treat patients with Fisher syndrome, but it depends on the situation at hospital. Thanks there to Nobuhiro Yuki. In next month's edition, Nick Ward will be looking into small vessel disease and ICH and will also soon be bringing you interviews with the speakers of the Association of British Neurologists annual meeting. So watch out for both of those. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.